Okay. So last night was an introduction to dependent origination. I talked about the 12 links. I also talked about the general principle. Uh, when I talked about the general principle, I talked about Sati, the son of the fisherman who thought his consciousness transmigrated. That's from uh, a sutta, middle length discourse number 38, the greater discourse on the destruction of craving. It's, it's an interesting sutta. If you're into reading suttas, it's a good one to study. Uh, it's actually two discourses jammed together. The first one is on the destruction of bhavatana, craving for becoming. So sati is craving that he become something in his next life, right? Uh, the second sutta of the two jammed together is on kamatana, craving for sense pleasures. And then there's a little bridge in between the two that it seems to me is a very late bit of addition because it contradicts what has gone before. It's kind of, well, slightly interesting. But anyhow, for the Kamatanha, overcoming the craving for sense pleasures, what's suggested there is, well, the gradual training that we talked about with the Samanyapala Sutta. Keep the precepts, guard the senses, be mindful, be content with little, Abandon the hindrances, practice the jhanas. And then having practiced the jhanas, you found something that's a bit more interesting than the usual uh, way of getting sense pleasures, a little more reliable. And you also gain some insight into the nature of reality with your insight practice post-jhana. Tonight I want to look at another sutta in the middle-length discourses. This is number 18, the Honeyball Sutta. It talks about a, a list, a links, a list of links that's different from the 12. Uh, there are multiple links that are different from the 12 links, and it's not just the ones that are shortened. But there are, yeah, a number of ways that one thing depends on another, which depends on another, which depends on another. I mean, that's the way reality is put together. And so the Buddha highlights different ones at, at various times. And so this one is one that highlights basically the importance of the five khandhas that Matt talked about this morning and how they fit into a pattern that overlaps some of the 12 links but gives us a really important set of links for understanding how we process our sensory input. So that's what I heard. Once the Buddha was living at Sabati in Jetas Grove on a Tependikas Park. And one morning, the Buddha left to go meditate. And he went to a, a secluded place in the woods and a lay person from the nearby village comes by and rudely interrupts the Buddha's solitary meditation to ask what he teaches, what his doctrine is. The answer is a bit cryptic. I teach in a way such that one does not quarrel with anyone, 
in a way that concepts no more underlie one who lives detached from sensual pleasures, without bewilderment, free from worry and craving. Uh, the questioner is not pleased. He uh, sticks out his tongue, waggles his head, and leaves. Uh, that evening, the Buddha tells the monks what had transpired. And one of the monks asked the Buddha, how does he teach in that way? How is it that concepts no longer underlie the Buddha? And again, the Buddha's reply is a bit cryptic. As for the source through which concepts and mental proliferations beset one, if nothing is found to desire or cling to, this is the end of the underlying tendencies to unwholesome states, the end of quarrels and disputes, here these evil states cease without remainder. Now, rather than unpacking this statement at that time, let's look at the dependent arisings. So what I'm going to do is copy this and stick it in the chat. Now, where I'm copying it from is my book on dependent origination, which has a chapter on the Honeyball Sutta. So, evil, unwholesome states, such as quarrels and disputes, arise dependent upon desire and clinging, which arises dependent upon concepts and mental proliferation. This is somewhat similar to what we found in the discourse on quarrels and disputes, uh, Sutta Nipata 4.11, that I talked about at the start of the talk last night. Quarrels and disputes arise dependent on desire and clinging, but desire and clinging in this sutta, the Honeyball Sutta, are not said to be dependent on pleasant and unpleasant and then contact and name and form. Here desire and clinging arise dependent upon concepts and mental proliferation. Uh, but what, is, what does this exactly mean? Well, after the Buddha saying his little cryptic thing there, he retired to his dwelling, his kuti. The monks were puzzled. Who can we ask that can explain the details of this? They decided to go to the venerable Maha Kachiana and ask him to explain it. Maha Kachiana says, you should have asked the Buddha, but he says he'll do what he can. Mahakachana says he understands the detailed meaning as follows. For each of the six senses, he says, dependent on the sense organ and the sense objects, sense consciousness arises. The meaning of these three is contact. With contact as condition, there is Vedana, what one feels, Vediti, the verb form of Vedana, one conceptualizes. Sanyanti, verb form of sanya. What one conceptualizes, one thinks. Vitakati, verb form of vitaka. What one thinks about, one mentally proliferates. Papancha sanya sankata. Okay. Uh, it's still a little cryptic, but let's build the dependent arising table again and I'll stick it in the chat.
Lee, I couldn't actually see your previous post in the chat. I don't know if it's gone just to the guy who's uh, and not to everyone else. It. Uh, Leo, can you make it so I can chat to everyone? All right. Thank you for letting me know. All right. There's the first post. All right. Evil unwholesome states arise dependent on desire and clinging, arise dependent upon concepts and mental proliferation. And then now we have Makachana's elaboration on that. Dependent upon sense organ and sense object, sense consciousness arises. Okay, so for example, you have your eye and there are objects that you can see. You can see the screen, etc. Sense consciousness is necessary though for you to process it. You see the tanka over my shoulder? Look really careful at the white circle in the center of the tanka. Look really carefully at it. You see that white circle? Now become aware of what's in your peripheral vision. What's in your peripheral vision was there all along, but you weren't conscious of it, right? So the objects in your peripheral vision were there, and your eye was working just fine, but you needed sense consciousness. You needed to become aware of that. So, dependent on the organ and the objects, sense consciousness can arise. If you don't have eyes or there's nothing in your peripheral vision, then there's not going to be any sight consciousness. Dependent upon sense organ, sense object, and sense consciousness, contact arises. This is really important to realize. There are three things that come together to make contact, which is talked about in the dependent origination, both in the 12 link version and in the shorter original version in the Carlson Dispute Sutta. And so what is contact? There's a sense object, there's a sense organ, and there's the sense consciousness, right? So if you're really concentrated and there's a sound outside, the sound waves are there they come to your ear, but you're so concentrated, you're not conscious of the sound outside. But normally, yeah, you would hear a sound that's outside. You have to be really concentrated, either perhaps in the jhanas, or maybe you're working on some project and you're completely absorbed in that project and you don't hear the minor sound outside. So contact arises dependent on the three. Dependent upon contact, Vedna arises, right? And that's in pretty much all of the multi-step dependent originations. Vedna arising dependent on contact. In the Quarrelsome Dispute, it was pleasant and unpleasant arising dependent on contact. Dependent on Vedna, Sanya arises. Okay, that's not in in the 12 links of dependent origination. Sanya is usually translated as perception, but I want to translate it as conceptualization. 
Here we go again. Can you see the bird and the flowers? Yeah, there's no bird or flowers. It's just colored shapes, and you conceptualize bird and flowers. I could say you perceive bird and flowers, but I want to use the word conceptualization because I think that captures it better. You conceptualize, you construct bird and flowers out of that colored shape. All right, so dependent on Vedna, conceptualization arises. Dependent upon conceptualization, thinking arises. This is Sankara. Sankara in the aggregates, the khandas, actually refers to thoughts, emotions, memories, intentions. It's pretty much the catch-all for all mental activities other than Vedna and Sanya and consciousness. Okay? So, if it's mental and it's not consciousness, Vedana, Sanya, then it's a Sankara. Now, if we take the word Sankara at its broadest definition, meaning something constructed, then yeah, Vedana are constructed, so Vedana are Sankara. But the aggregates splits it out for pedagogical purposes. So it's important to realize that Sankara has this very broad meaning. It's the catch-all bucket for all the mental activities that aren't specifically mentioned elsewhere in the khandas. Right? And so now we've got Vedana, conceptualization, and then thinking. Dependent upon thinking, mental proliferation arises. Okay, so the sense organs are the five external senses, eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind. It's the sixth sense. And the six senses are the five external sense objects. The sight, sound, smells, taste, tangibles, or textures. And the mind objects, which is dhammas. Since consciousness is the basic interface between the physical sense object and sense organ and the mental, knowing the sensory input. So consciousness is what mediates between the external world and the internal world. That's, that's how our knowledge of the external world gets in there via sense consciousness. If you're not conscious of it, you don't know what's going on, even if it's going on. Consciousness could be defined as that which knows. So right now, you're not conscious of the sensations on the bottom of your left foot. Oh, not till I mentioned it. There was pressure on your left foot until, I mean, it wasn't like the pressure showed up when I mentioned it. It was there all along, but you weren't conscious of it. And so, yeah, you become aware of it. That's touch consciousness. It's the same with all the other senses. There can be stuff happening and you're not aware of it. This is useful because there is far too much going on for us to process everything. So since your left foot is doing just fine, you don't need to be conscious of the pressure in your left foot. Okay, If we were conscious of all the sensory input coming in, we'd be overwhelmed. This is one thing that can happen when somebody takes psychedelics. The psychedelics throw open the doors of perception and you get so much more sensory input that it can freak you out, right? That can cause a bad trip. 
So normally we're not processing everything that's coming in. We're not conscious of it. Contact is the coming together of sense organ, sense object, and sense consciousness. It takes all three. This is not mentioned in the 12 links of dependent origination, but it's taught here, and it shows up in other suttas as well. Sanya arises dependent on Vedna, and Sanya is really an important word. Up until the Sanya step, it's all pretty much automatic. It's not under your conscious control. Right? Even the sanya most of the time isn't your conscious control. Right? But can be. I mean, you see this and you conceptualize it as a cell phone. But you could conceptualize it as a rectangular slab that weighs about a half a pound or however you wanted to conceptualize it. You don't have to think cell phone. You could conceptualize it as just a black rectangle. Or you could conceptualize it as a camera, right? It's a camera. Oh, it's got a 1960s supercomputer attached to it, but this is really just a camera with a 1960s supercomputer attached to it. Or, you remember Dick Tracy? Do you have Dick Tracy in the UK, this detective who had a wrist radio? Yeah, this is Dick Tracy's wrist radio upgraded. Right? So these are all different concepts that you could throw on top of this. So your conceptualization is the first thing that you actually have some control over what's going on. You can't control the Vedana. You know, if it's a pleasant sound, it, it's pleasant, right? But we have some control and we can pay attention to how we're conceptualizing the world. As I mentioned, the universe is too big for our little pea brains to take it all in. So, in order to deal with the world, we have to chop it up into bits and pieces. And we conceptualize those bits and pieces. This is, I don't know, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Or this is Vegemite. No, wait, you eat Marmite right? Or this is a banana, or this is, okay. So we're taking a piece of the universe and we're conceptualizing it as a banana, and a banana is something I can eat. Eating is another concept. I is also another concept, right? So it's really important. When there is a sensory input, we conceptualize that input, which then provides us with the name and the identification of that input. So, when I say it's a cell phone, you have conceptualized it. I'm going to put the name on it. In fact, the concept gives you the name to put on it. The conceptualizing is basically you looking it up in your database of potential objects until you find something that that seems like what it is and attached to it is the name and you call it cell phone or camera with a 1960 supercomputer attached or whatever you call it. Okay. So what we've got here is the uh, basics of sensory input. There's an object and an organ. These come together 
with sense contact, with sense consciousness to generate contact. Contact is followed invariably by Vedna. Then we conceptualize that input. Now, as I said, the conceptualization doesn't always occur. If you're well concentrated, there might be a sound, but you don't bother to conceptualize it. You might even know there was a sound, but you didn't bother to identify what it was. And then we think about it. Thinking involves stringing together concepts. When I say, think of the first teacher you had when you went to university, or the first teacher you had in your first class in your first year of school. All right? Those are all concepts. Teacher, first, university, school. All right? You take those concepts, you string them together, and you get, you know, I got Mrs. Edwards from my first grade teacher. I got uh, Professor So-and-so is for the first professor I had in university. All right? So we communicate via concepts, and we string the concepts together to make a thought. When I say your first grade teacher, I'm taking the concept of your first grade and teacher, I'm forming each concept into a word, I'm throwing that word at the microphone in my computer where it gets digitized, sent over the internet, comes out of the speaker in your computer, goes into your ear, and my hope is that when I say your, it produces the same concept in your mind that it produces in mine. First grade, again, my concept hopefully gets transmitted to your concept. Teacher, hopefully gets transmitted. So when we're talking to someone, we're throwing bits of Sonia at them. We're throwing concepts at them, and we're hoping they're stringing together those concepts in this, to make the same thought or memory or whatever that we're trying to communicate. The word sankara, which in the aggregates, remember, is thinking and emoting and intentions and memories, literally means making together. And what are we making together? We are taking various concepts and making them together and gives us the thought. Now we may take one thought and a concept and make those together, or two thoughts and make them together to make a bigger thought. I mean, there's a lot of making together, but the basic building block is the concepts. And this is what Mahakachana is pointing out here. In Pali, there's no distinction between thinking and emotions. Thoughts and emotions are just mental activities. So when you're reading and there's talking about thinking, it's also referring to emoting or thoughts, emotions, or sankharas includes both thoughts and emotions, but also includes memories and intentions as well. Okay. So we have the mechanism of sensory processing, and it's actually quite important. And so to that end, I'll stick it once again. All right, in the chat. Object plus organ plus consciousness equals contact. 
That leads to Vedana, which leads to Sanya, conceptualization, which leads to Sankara, as thinking, emoting, memories, intentions, etc. This is really helpful in exploring many aspects of the Buddha's teachings, as well as our own direct experience, to just understand how we're processing the input that's coming in. I mean, you've been looking at things for decades. You've been hearing things for decades. Have you ever stopped to analyze just what's going on there? Well, the Buddha did, and he laid it out well enough that it got preserved for us. Now, the most important bit of this is to realize this is not a one-shot deal. The thinking that arises is input to the sixth sense. And guess what? It also generates a Vedana, right? And that Vedana might generate another concept and some more thinking and another Vedana, and you get the picture. When it goes on and on like that, that's papancha. That's mental proliferation. That's your distraction, right? You had this thought about something and you got lost in this distraction. You got lost in mental proliferation. Okay, it's very important to understand that the five sense Vedna may be missed or overwhelmed by the later Vedna generated by your downstream mental reaction. I can give you an example of this. So, um, if you're playing cards, something like bridge or something, there's a suit where there's powerful cards. These are trump cards, you know, and so you can jump in there and take your opponent's cards, right, with these trump cards. Or you can have a president named Trump, and it produces very different Vedna, right? So I've had Trump cards that made me happy, and I had a President Trump who made me very unhappy. Well, the happy, that's the result of the Vedna that's produced. Okay, the word is the same. When I say the word, I'm saying exactly the same, but you're getting a different Vedna off of it, dependent upon the context there, dependent upon your mental processing of the whole context in which you're hearing that word. Okay? Often what we miss is the Vedna of the sound. How many of you recognize that the sound I was making, Trump, was neutral? Yeah. You didn't even bother with that because it was neutral. You were trying to understand what I was saying. Okay? The whole thing about missing the initial Vedna and only getting lost up in the downstream Vedna is actually quite important. For example, uh, an example I used to use, you hear an airplane fly over, and you think, yeah, after this retreat's over, I'm flying to Mallorca. That's going to be a great vacation. And so you think the sound you heard was pleasant, but if you had listened carefully to the sound, it was kind of unpleasant because airplane sounds are not particularly pleasant. Right? It's kind of harsh. 
right? But you didn't notice that Vedna. What you noticed was the Vedna of your downstream thinking. I'm going to be on an airplane to Mallorca next week, right? It's really important to realize that when the Buddha says all he teaches is dukkha and the end of dukkha, what he's teaching is how to not react in a way so that you're producing the downstream dukkha vedana. <coughs> There's a sutta in the Samyutta Nikaya. It's SN 36.6. It's called the dart or sometimes the arrow. In that sutta, the Buddha says, monks, an untaught ordinary worldling, a puttajana, uh, Santikaro translates that as a thickster. Okay, so someone who, yeah, just an ordinary person, experiences an unpleasant physical sensation and immediately gets upset about experiencing the unpleasant physical sensation. That's like a man who's been struck by a dart and immediately struck by a second dart. The first dart is the unpleasant physical sensation and the unpleasant reaction. Who did this? Who left that thing there that I stepped on that hurt my foot? Or whatever, right? That unpleasant reaction is a second dart. But a noble, well-taught disciple of the Blessed One, of the Tathagata, experiences the exact same physical sensation, but does not get upset. That's like someone who's struck by a dart and is not immediately struck by a second dart. Right? What the Buddha is teaching is not to react in a way that produces unpleasant downstream dukkha vedana. Right? You stub your toe, it still hurts, right? Even if you're fully awakened. I mentioned earlier that the Buddha had a bad back. Bad enough sometimes he had to lie down rather than give the Dhamma talk. Right? So the physical sensations were unpleasant unpleasant enough he needed to rest his back. But he wasn't having a negative reaction to that. He was just dealing with it. Sariputta, give the talk. Mahakachana, give the talk. Right? What the Buddha is promising when he says the end of dukkha is the end of your downstream unpleasant vedna reactions to your sensory input. Okay? I saw something in uh, the New Scientist magazine on their website, an article. I wish I had kept a copy of it. Um, and basically it said that 80% of our mental activity arises from our mental activity. Only 20% arises from the external five senses. Right? So we're all the time doing stuff to ourselves based on, well, doing stuff to ourselves. We get it triggered by the mental activity, and then we have all sorts of reactions to it. And what the Buddha's teaching is not to have those reactions. What he's teaching is to get your mindfulness in there 
so that when there's a pleasant vedna, you don't fall into craving and clinging. And when there's an unpleasant vedna, you don't fall into craving and clinging for the absence of the source of that unpleasant vedna. You just deal with the situation. Your back hurts, go lie down, right? But what often happens is we get a sensory input and it produces a Vedna and we conceptualize the input and we start thinking about it and then the thinking gets out of hand and generates Papancha. Right? And this is the second important takeaway. The first one being that it's this experience of sensory input generating thinking doesn't stop there. The thinking produces more Vedna and goes on and on. And the second thing is understanding papancha. Papancha is one of the best Pali words. It means mental proliferation. Um, you think something and you think another thing and then it spirals out of control. Uh, for example, there's a story about a man whose wife asked him to go to the market and purchase some potatoes. Yes, dear. And as he's just ready to leave the house, his wife says, and be sure and get a good price. Yes, dear. So he leaves and he's walking towards the market and he's thinking, yes, she wants me to get a good price, but she always wants me to get good potatoes too. It's hard to get good potatoes for a good price. You can get bad potatoes for a good price and you can get good potatoes for, you know, a good price, but I mean, a you know, a bad, expensive price, but to get good potatoes for, yeah, a good price, that that's hard. Uh, you got to watch out for those potato sellers. They'll put good potatoes on the top and bad potatoes on the bottom, and you think you're getting good potatoes at this great price, and you take them home, and there's sometimes a rotten potato in there. I hate the smell of rotten potatoes. At that point, he's arrived at the market. He walks up to the potato seller and screams in his face, you can keep your rotten potatoes, and walks away. This is papancha, right? It just got out of hand. Uh, maybe you haven't done this lately with potatoes, but you probably are somewhat familiar with just your mind spinning out on stuff that it really didn't need to. Being able to recognize papancha when it's starting and drop it is very important. Basically, all of our distractions, you're trying to get to access concentration, and you think, I'm not getting there. And then you think, oh, I'm a terrible person. I'm a terrible meditator. This is too hard. I think I should take up Sufi dancing. That's, that's all papancha, right? What was happening, it was, you were trying to do something difficult and it wasn't coming as fast as you wanted it to. Okay, that's what happened. You don't need to take up Sufi dancing because of that, right? So, Pay attention to your distractions and notice how they're papancha. The key teaching from Mahakachana's explanation in the Honeyball Sutta is that unless we're careful, the thinking gets out of hand and spirals into papancha. Right? So we have sense object, sense organ, sense consciousness, contact, vedna, conceptualization, thinking, and then mental proliferation or papancha.
We can now understand what the Buddha originally said to the monks. Don't let your sensory input trigger papancha. Papancha can lead to delight, welcoming, and holding. If you don't get entangled in this way, then the underlying tendencies to unwholesome states are not there. This is the end of quarrels and disputes and other unwholesome actions. So what we can do is combine the Buddha's cryptic first thing and Mahakachana's detailed explanation into a single chart. And so here we go once again in the chat. All right, here's the whole thing. All right. Dependent upon sense organ and sense object, sense consciousness arises. Dependent upon sense organ, sense consciousness, sense object, sense consciousness arises. Dependent upon sense consciousness, contact. Dependent on contact, Vedna. Dependent on Vedna, Sanya. Dependent on Sanya, thinking. Dependent upon thinking, mental proliferation. Dependent upon mental proliferation, delight, welcoming, and holding or we could say craving and clinging. Dependent upon those, unwholesome tendencies are strengthened. Dependent upon underlying unwholesome tendencies, quarrels, disputes, and other evil unwholesome states arise. So now we have a description of how we process our mental, our input and how sometimes when we're processing it, it gets out of hand and leads into unwholesome states that set up quarrels, disputes, and other things. The Honeyball Sutta uses the general principle of dependent origination to create another list of links. These new links also show how we can fall into evil, unwholesome states, dukkha. The sutta also shows that if we can break this chain at any point, we won't fall into the dukkha states. Now, breaking it at any point, Mahakachana says you can break it at any point. can't really break it between contact and vedna, right? You probably, well, sometimes you can break it before contact, in other words, you you don't go to that awful movie. You don't watch that terrible TV show. You don't visit that very unwholesome website. You, yeah, you get the picture, right? So you guard your senses by not taking in the sensory input there. The guarding of the senses is, yeah, you're present with what's going on, but you don't grasp at the signs and secondary characteristics. The signs are what enable you to know what it is. In other words, you use the signs to conceptualize what's going on. The secondary characteristics are the things. So the sign, yeah, black, square, rectangular, has, has something glowing on it, cell phone. Secondary characteristics, oh, we can make phone calls on that. You know, I need to get a new cell phone because mine's not making good phone calls now. Right. So the secondary characteristic, other than identifying, is you can make phone calls on it. And now it's leading off into papancha because you weren't guarding your senses and you're grasping at a new cell phone for yourself. Right? Okay. 
it's probably best to break it between the Vedna and the craving. Now, the Sanya is most often going to arise, and it's okay if some of the thinking arises, as long as the thinking is not associated with craving and clinging. It's only when the thinking gets associated with craving and clinging that there's a problem that arises. And when the craving and clinging gets in there, it's likely to wander off into papancha and then to unwholesome states and quarrels and disputes and all the rest of it. Okay? So after Mahakachana finished his explanation of the sutta, the monks went to see the Buddha. Venerable sir, we ask Mahakachana about this cryptic statement that you made. Made, and this is what he said. And the Buddha, as usual, says, Well, if you'd asked me, that's exactly what I would have said. And then Ananda, who was the Buddha's attendant, says, This is a really beautiful sutta, Venerable Sir. What is the name of it? Uh, now, he says, it's just as if a man, exhausted by hunger and weakness, came upon a honey ball. Wherever he would taste it, he would find a sweet, delectable flavor. So too, venerable sir, any able-minded bhikkhu, wherever he might scrutinize with wisdom the meaning of this discourse on the Dhamma, would find satisfaction and confidence of mind. What is the name of this discourse, venerable sir? You may call it the Honey Ball Sutta. So, and if you don't know what a honey ball is, uh, Indians have absolutely fantastic sweets. And one of the sweets is made with honey into a ball, I presume with flour and honey and so forth. And it's quite delicious. And so this is the honey ball sutta. So, questions, comments? <laughs> 